0: This ancient text before us today, that you would teach us, that your Spirit would work in our hearts so that we both understand the things that are written and seek to apply them in our lives. Lord, give us ears to hear today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I titled the sermon today, The Common Life, and it is derived from this phrase that we find in this passage that says, They had everything in common. But I will tell you as well that very much in mind as I prepared the sermon and as I uh, titled the sermon this week was the the formation of the medieval order, the brethren of the common life. And this order, and I I use the word order a little bit in quotes because it wasn't a full-blown monastic order. It did not have all of the rules and all of the vows associated with other monastic orders. It was more and and you'll appreciate this, given the text more voluntary, as they gathered together and as they lived together. But they sought to express together love, repentance, obedience, humility. They tried to live simply, to work hard, to be compassionate, to be full of prayer, and to live a contemplative life. And in particular, what they were trying to do is live according to the pattern that is found in the early chapters of Acts, particularly in the verse and chapters and section that is before us today that we are considering. They saw that all of the things that I just mentioned about them, the generosity, the repentance, the desire to work hard, were not to be done in isolation from others, but as part of a common life, as part of a shared life. So they agreed in spirit with the psalmist who said how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And when we look at an example of this here in Acts chapter 4, I think all of us read this. Even if you're not a Christian, you read this and can appreciate with joy this kind of description that we got in verse 32, right as we started off this passage. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. There's a simple lesson that comes out from a passage like this, and that lesson is this. We need each other. Even if we lived in a perfect world, where there was no sin and there was no greed, we would still need each other to express the love of the Trinity. To show the love of God to others is part of how we were made. But the reality is, of course, that we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a fallen world, in a tough world, and so even still more, the people of God need one another. We need to share our lives with one another. But the shared life, the common life, is uncommon. The very structure of our modern world, the, the very schedules of things that we have to do or to take our kids to do, they militate against, against a shared life, against a common life lived with others. And so the question... But I want us to have in mind as we look through this passage today is how will you wage war against personal isolation and for a life shared with God's people? How will we do that together? There's no fancy outline for this passage that is before us today, at least that I'm going to give to us. The challenge here, while there are some tricky parts to understand, and we have to wrestle through those, the challenge is going to be in the living of this, in the doing of it, and we'll work our way basically through the structure of this text. So let's look, first of all, at the positive evidence of this common life. What is focused on here in this passage is the sharing of their possessions, the sharing of the things which they owned. We know, and I'm just going to say this, and then I'm going to move back to the possessions in just a moment, we know that there is much that lies behind that. These believers are of one heart and one soul. And the source of that one heart and one soul, Luke has made clear to us in Acts, even in the four short chapters that have preceded this, the source of this unity that they have is the work of the Holy Spirit bringing them into union with Jesus Christ. So as the Spirit brings them into union with Jesus Christ, they are then in communion with one another as well. As we are in Christ, we have communion with one another. That is the source that is given here for the unity that they are expressing. Now, the way that they then express it and the way that they continue to build it are the kind of things that we've already talked about and already seen in Acts. They express it and they grow in it through taking time to pray together, to worship together, to devote themselves to the apostolic teaching, to spend time in each other's homes and spend time eating together. The result of all of that is found in the text in verse 33 where it says, great grace was upon them all. As a result of this shared life, this common life together, Great grace in Christ was upon them all. The way we can look at this generosity that is demonstrated for us here is in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Essentially, this was a people who knew the great things that they had been given in Jesus Christ. The grace that had been shown to them in Jesus Christ was now a grace that they would show to one another. They gave, and they were generous... Because God in Christ had given and had been generous to them. It was the very nature of the community. It was the expression of the love that they had in Christ and then for one another. At this point, it is worth saying this. I don't want you to spend any time getting distracted by looking at this passage and wondering if this applies or contradicts with some kind of a political or an economic system. That is not the focus of this text as well. It is not trying to set out for us what governmental policy should be or what the best structure of a government is. It is simply describing for us the attitude, the love, the generosity that characterized the early church. The text makes it very clear that nothing in terms of the possessions, the land, the houses, nothing is mandated, nothing is forced, nothing is coerced here. Generosity and freedom are the foci of what is going on. They are the background by which this is taking place. How can we help people among us who are in need? That's the simple question. And just to be clear, they were not setting up here a a benefit organization or social organization for all of the needs that existed within Jerusalem. In particular, they are focused on those who are needy within their group, within this new formed community. Any who were needy were being shared with by those who were of resources of some sort or another. And the people are digging deep, they are sacrificing, and they are sharing with one another. They're selling and going so far as to sell land, to sell houses, And what they do with the proceeds is then they they bring them to the church and they put them at the apostles' feet. And as they do that, we shouldn't get the sense here that the apostles are up on thrones uh, and they're, they're laying them at their feet, but instead what this is is a symbolic act of the transfer of the rights of this property and of the possessions to the church to be divided up as any had need in particular through the leadership of the church. And we get an example of that. In particular, right at the end there of uh, chapter 4, we get the example of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who will, of course, figure prominently as Acts moves along and goes forward. An example of one who did exactly the kind of thing that is described in general. One thing I would say as we, we, we think about this positive side of things, do note that Acts presents to us many types of giving. We could look at a passage like this and go, wow, I don't know if I'm prepared to sell my house, or should I sell my house, or should I sell land that I have right now? Acts presents to us many types of giving of which this is one particular type. It didn't have to be the way that it is described here, and the very conversation that Peter has with Ananias shows that he didn't need to do any of the things that he did. He didn't need to sell the house. He didn't need to bring all the proceeds. He could have just said, I'm bringing you half of the proceeds, and it would have been completely fine. Nothing is coerced. Nothing is required in terms of the methodology here. Many other members of the church will hold on to their homes and to their property and then to use them in service to the church where churches would meet in the homes of particular people. I always think back to Philemon and how Philemon used his home to encourage and refresh the hearts of the saints as Paul writes to him about that very thing. It's a beautiful picture of this earthly community of the communion of the saints. So everything's great in chapter 4. And then we read in Acts chapter 5 a negative example that goes on in association with this of Ananias and Sapphira. I I read one commentary this week about this passage, and I appreciated that this is often referred to as the original sin of the church. Now, somewhere in seminary, I had missed that designation of this as the original sin of the church, but I appreciated it because it kind of draws attention to the significance of what we see happening in Acts chapter 5 and the reality that so often scripturally, we see a wonderful event followed by serious sin. So just take a couple of examples. Creation is an example of this. We have have the creation and then the original sin that falls from the creation in Genesis chapter 3. We have the deliverance of Noah and his family, and then we have the drunkenness that follows right after that. We have Exodus, and then we have the golden calf, We have the triumph of going into the land that God has been giving to them, the victory over Jericho, and then we have Achan holding back a portion for himself. We see this pattern over and over in Scripture, and I wonder this as I look at it, have you not seen this in your own life as well? Have you not seen times where you've had great spiritual experiences followed by a crash, followed by something of your own doing that you just can't believe the juxtaposition of these two things, the great grace that you've been shown in some event, and then the sin which you fall into right after that takes place. I think the very structure of it is important and instructive to us. Last week, what we saw in Acts chapter 4, and we pointed this out specifically, was the beginning of the external opposition to the church. And now we see that problems in the church are internal as well. To this point, there have been no internal problems in Acts. Now we see the beginning of exactly that. The church is oppressed then by the world and by her own sin. And if that wasn't enough, Peter makes clear that those aren't the only two agencies engaged in opposition. So in chapter 5, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Satan is opposed to the church as as well. So you've got the world, you've got our own sin, and you've got Satan oppressing the church of Jesus Christ. To put it in the language of Revelation, the dragon is pursuing the woman and her child and her other children as well. I want to say this concisely, but yet it's important, and and I said it in more detail last week. The reason that this has to be shown is because Luke is explaining to Theophilus why this kingdom has this shape. This glorious kingdom of God is shaped by suffering. It is shaped by opposition. And the reason is so that we, the people of God, can be shaped into Jesus Christ. So that we can be made into the image of our Savior. So that the things that oppressed our Savior and took him to the cross, are the things that oppress us as well. Not his own sin, our sin, oppressing our Savior, but we are being cruciformed through this process. Now that said, this is a hard passage for us. It's hard to figure out some of the details of this, and I'm sure I'm not going to be able to explain all of them, but there are questions that come up for us. The first of them, I think, is this. When you read this passage and you read about this immediate death Of these two people, it feels to us more like the Old Testament than the New. Does it not? You kind of read this and go, well, well, that seems strange. This is the New Covenant where people are forgiven more graciously, more fully, more quickly than they were in the Old Covenant. How does this take place? What is happening here? And illustratively, I, I want to say it this way I think that what God is doing here is He is firing a shot across the bow for the church in all ages. A way of saying, do not think that you can take advantage of this great grace that has been shown to you. Do not think it's okay now to be hypocrites. It's okay to do whatever you want to do. I am still this God. Realize it. Be aware of it as you seek to serve one another within the context of the church. Don't be hypocrites. And then we wonder another question, like what does this say about this couple? Are we to understand that they were believers, that they were just professing believers but not actual believers, or were they unbelievers? What do we, what do we understand about Ananias and Sapphira? Well, we don't have a lot of evidence in and of itself except this particular judgment that is rendered against them. But we want to be careful here, because we don't want to say that every time somebody lies, God is going to strike them down right at that moment. Who of us hasn't done something like this? Now, we look at this as dramatic as, you know, it happened right in front of Peter. How could you have done that? Well, there's many times when we fudge the truth just a little bit, when, when we give ourselves a little bit more credit for what we're giving than we've actually done. So we don't know the state of their soul here, but we know clearly that what they did was hypocritical, that they were somehow playing at church, thinking they could get away with this, thinking they could get credit for a great gift when it wasn't quite all that it was cracked up to be as it turned out. And another question that comes to us is, why wasn't Peter more patient with them? Of all people, of all, I, I mean, of all people who knew what it was like pretty recently, to lie? Peter knew it. Why not be a little bit more gentle with him and a little bit more pastoral? Peter, who had been commanded, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. It's hard for us to grasp this exactly, but it seems clear that God is seeking in this moment to establish the apostolic authority that belongs to them for this work of discipline that has been entrusted to the church. And it seems that God is specifically aiming to create that which we see in verse 5 when it says, And great fear came upon all those who heard it, and then repeated again in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. God is aiming to create exactly that we just finished Exodus. In Exodus, we had the picture of God as a consuming fire, right? What God wants to say as we've now come into the new covenant is, do not think that I have become a campfire instead of a consuming fire. I am still the God who I am. And so you have these these two phrases that are laid kind of next to one another in this passage. The phrase that started it, great grace was upon them all, and the phrase that ends it, wherein we read that great fear was upon them all. And somehow, as a believer, I want to hold on to both of those things. I want to appreciate the great grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ without treating these things lightly, without taking God lightly cultivating a fear, which, of course, biblically speaking, is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I think, interestingly, in verse 11, if you have your Bibles open or the, or the, or the uh, bulletins, in verse 11, having seen this grace, this generosity, the sin, the satanic opposition that exists, the discipline, the apostolic authority that characterizes this passage, this is for Luke the very first time that he calls this community, this community that is now at its worst, this community that is now exposed, warts and all, this is the first place where he calls them the church. All other words have been used along the way, but in Acts, it's it's at this point where Luke reserves the use of the word church and applies it to us a mixed community, gracious but full of faults and warts. What are the implications of this for us? Well, first of all, the implications are this. If you are not, become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and join a local church. That is where you commit yourselves with others to a common life. They were together here even when things were difficult And that is the call that comes to us as well. A place where we can express together the communion of the saints. And then we have to express the communion of the saints tangibly and specifically within our communities. Give and give generously. That's what this passage is about. This is the way they shared their possessions with one another. And we need to feel the full weight of that. It hits us exactly where we live. It's not just incidental. Money hits at our heart. Give and give generously. That is a way to express the communion of the saints. Lend to one another. Make meals for one another. Call, visit, write one another. Pray for one another. Drive each other to places when you need to drive to places. Participate together in the life of the church, in worship. In Sunday school, in small groups, come to evening worship and relax and fellowship with us, come to a prayer meeting and enjoy the time of interceding before the throne of grace. Come to a men's breakfast, come to an art show, participate together. Third: take obedience and integrity in the church seriously. Do your best to cultivate a healthy fear. It's easy to overlook it. It's easy to think that God's not doing this stuff anymore. I'm okay. Cultivate a healthy fear. Take vows and feel the weight of those vows. Don't play at church. Fourth, remember that the world, flesh, flesh, Satan, all are against the common life and therefore be intentional and deliberate in seeking a common life together. Pastor, I feel like I'm not connected with anybody in the church. If I had a house or the proceeds from a house for every time I heard that... (laughs) All the time, people come to me and they talk about feeling lonely, feeling isolated. If you feel lonely, if you feel isolated, move. Move towards others in the church. Do the kind of things that I just stated. They're not complicated. They're the things that are available to us to share a common life together and. For those of us who see others who might be lonely in the church, move. Move towards them in grace. And finally, then, the last implication that I think comes from a passage like this when things are sailing along in the life of the church, when everything's good, when the waters are calm and the wind is great and it's sweet to be together, then rejoice and enjoy those times. But, don't be surprised. When your sin, or my sin, or somebody else's sin, or something, you can't even figure out what it is, causes a deep, painful fracture in the body of Christ... It will happen. Mourn it. Hate it when it happens. But don't be surprised by it. Because it is through this very thing that the Holy Spirit is taking us and saying, you need to get to Jesus. You only have one hope. And that is in Jesus Christ. Hate the things that divide us Don't be complacent about them, but don't be surprised by them. And don't, therefore, isolate yourself from the common life in protection of yourself. It's easy to do that, especially if you've been burned a few times. We are going to be one in Jesus Christ. The common life is the inheritance that we have. We're going to enjoy eternity together in perfect fellowship, sharing the inheritance joyfully together. It's all God's. And we'll all share it together. For now, we've got a taste of that. We've got a taste of sweet fellowship that happens every once in a while. And we've got a call to keep pursuing exactly that thing. That is the evidence of the Spirit of God at work in our lives and at work in our church. Not that it's all perfect, not that it's all Acts chapter 4, the end part. Acts 4 and Acts 5, that's our life together in Christ. Let's pray.